Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Hail, O full of grace, virgin and mother of God, for to thee is given the Son of Righteous Christ our God, and you, just elder Simeon, rejoice, for you carried in your arms the Redeemer of our souls, who grants us resurrection. Most holy Theotokos, save us. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University, University and a Licentiate and Doctorate in Sacred Theology from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College. That was 1977, when I was two years old, and has since served continuously as professor of theology. He's a well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism, and is a regular presenter here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Marshner. Thank you very much, Deacon Sabatino. I, too, am glad to be back in your midst. See you all again. It's been a while. I'm supposed to speak to you about the early ecumenical councils, the issues they settled, and the philosophical background to the settlement of those issues. Deacon Sabatino was especially uh, anxious that you should come away from these lectures knowing the key philosophical ideas that were brought into theology in the process of serving these great issues addressed by the first ecumenical councils. Now, becoming competent in philosophy, despite how the subject is often taught, is really not a matter of learning a lot of facts. Like who wrote what book and what did Aristotle say in that book, what did Plato say in this one? That, that stuff is all secondary. What really matters in philosophical education is learning distinctions. Okay? Without distinctions, a culture faces major disasters. The most obvious example of this came out when I was talking about Islam a while ago. In Islam, there is simply no distinction between the mosque and the state, so to speak, between the religious community and the civil community. No distinction whatsoever. And so religion and politics are perpetually not only mashed up, but mashed together, cemented together, and war becomes an instrument of religion. This is a major disaster. 
So distinctions matter. And I would say that the heritage of any civilization, its cultural heritage, is largely a matter of the distinctions which it inculcates between God and creature, between church and state, justice and mercy. Okay, I want to begin, therefore, with an enormously basic distinction. It's between the thing we're talking about and how we describe it. Let's see if this will work. Thing we are talking about versus how we describe it. I don't think there's anyone who fails to understand this distinction. Um, suppose I hold up this thing and I describe it as black. Well, that's true enough. I can also describe it as mostly paper. That's true enough. I could hold up a chair. Sometimes I've actually done this. See if my muscles are with me tonight. Ha! I described this thing as four-legged. You get it? All of those are true descriptions. None of them is the same as the thing itself. Okay. Next, the descriptions that we make of things subdivides. How we describe things subdivides into descriptions saying what it is versus descriptions saying how it is at present. Okay? Now, when I held up this thing and said it was black, that was a perfectly good description of how it is currently. But it would not answer the question of what it is. This could be a novel, could be a black brick. Well, in fact, it's a Bible. Okay? Now I've told you what it is. Now you know something crucial. I have a liquid here. I could describe it as delicious. I could describe it as restorative. Yeah. But this would only heighten your curiosity as to what is it. Okay. Well, it's coffee, so there. Now, there is a difference between how these two ways of describing something uh, work out in the world. Um, anything described as black, you can imagine putting into a vat of white dye, and it will come out white. Right? 
how it is will be changed. I take this Bible. It's black right now. I can put this into a vat of white dye. Come out. It wouldn't be black anymore, but it would still be a Bible. You with me? Yep. A rather soggy Bible, perhaps, but a Bible. As the liquid in my cup, St. John the Baptist could make an appearance among us tonight and by the power of God turned this coffee into vodka. But if he did that, it wouldn't be coffee anymore. What it is would have changed. All right? The coffee that used to exist wouldn't exist anymore. A different substance would have taken its place. Does everybody see that? And what is in this cup, I guess this is a good thing, what is in this cup cannot be at once coffee and vodka. Are you with me there? It can't be both at once. It has to be one or the other, and when it becomes the other, it ceases to be the one if we're talking about what it is. This is a point on which we disagree with the Hindus. We say, commonsensically enough, following every clue in our knowledge and in our language, we say that nothing can change what it is and still be the same individual it was. You cannot trace one and the same individual through a change in what it is. Can you think of an exception to that? I mean, a natural exception? All right, all right, all right, pieces of furniture. See this table here? <laughs> it's now a table. We could cut off the legs pretty short, and it would become a coffee table. We would have done something to change its classification as a piece of furniture, but deeply speaking, we wouldn't have changed what it is. It's still the same plastic or the same wood or whatever. Yes? Okay. But in Hinduism, one and the same individual self can go through a stage when it's a human being who misbehaves. And after death, this human being comes back as a rat. Or, the human being does well, oh, very well, does so well in his life as a human that he is blessed to come back as a sacred cow. As a cow. Well, we don't think that such changes happen. But we do agree with the Hindus to this extent. They no more than we can trace an individual through a reincarnation change. Okay? A Hindu may believe that some cow over there in that pasture was once a human being, but they can't tell you which one. Was that cow my grandfather? No answer. Was it somebody else's great uncle? No answer. Okay? 
We and they alike agree you cannot trace an individual through that kind of change in what it is. Okay? Now, when you put your toe, toe, that's all, into the deep waters of philosophy, you learn some further language for the distinctions I've been talking about. Okay? A description saying what a thing is, we call a description of its substance. The substance of a thing is what it is. Okay? A description just saying how it is currently, but could be otherwise and still be the same thing, the philosophers called an accidental description. And the properties so described are accidents of the thing. Substance, what a thing is. Accidents, how it is currently, shall we say. Or how it was yesterday. All clear so far? All right. Now, I want to put before you a Bible passage <clears throat> in which the issues we have just been discussing, the distinctions we have just been discussing, go to work. The passage I want to begin with, you can open your Bibles with me if you were sensible enough to bring one. I'm terrible at bringing mine along because I used to have... Um, do any of you remember that thing called the Jerusalem Bible? I used to have one of those huge thing. You can't carry that around. Anyway, I am in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 5 and following. You know this passage very well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought equality with God not a thing to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, or came to be in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? Great passage. I'm sure you've all heard it many times. All right. Now let's look at it. Clearly, there is one thing 
that we're talking about throughout this passage. One thing we're talking about. Okay? And it seems to go, this one thing seems to endure through three stages. In one stage, it's in the form of God. In the next stage, it humbles itself and takes on form of a servant. In the final stage, it is highly exalted and given a name above every name. All right? So one and the same thing is going through three stages. Form of God, form of servant, and exaltation. Does everybody see that? Now, it's easy to mistake the word which is here being translated as form. That word in Greek is morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. It's not a philosophical technical term like usia. It's a plain old ordinary Greek language word. However, it doesn't really mean what it sounds like to us at first hearing. When I hear form, I think shape. Something goes from being round to being squared, back to being round, sanded enough, I don't know. But morphe did not mean shape. Okay? It meant something deeper than that. It was an inner form determining the thing's nature. Okay? Nature. So although he was in the nature of God, he humbled himself, took on the nature of a servant, namely a human being found in the form of man. Took on the nature of a human being. Suffered death and then was highly exalted and given the name above every name. So Morphe is an inner form or nature. And clearly, what has the divine nature has the same form as God, Morphe. Our Lord then verifies, and this is hard. This is where things start to get hard. Our Lord verifies, as we go through this passage, two different descriptions saying what he is. He's God in form of God. He humbles himself and becomes man and survives the transition. Yes? Now, uh, how is this to be understood? Um, do you agree that, um, I think you agreed before, that what's in my cup could not be both vodka and water? I'm uh, coffee. That couldn't be. So then the question is, how do these two natures or forms relate to one another in Christ? Do we have here 
in this early passage in Christian history, Christian literature, the kind of thinking that you know from Grimm's fairy tales. Okay. Is it the case of having one nature and then changing into the other nature and then maybe changing back? I'm thinking of the frog prince. Okay, Grimm's fairy tale. Prince, great prince, is loathed and despised by some wicked witch who turns him into a frog. Ugly frog. And the frog <coughs> has to stay a frog until some maiden, some lovely princess, kisses the thing. <laughs> then it will get its true form or nature back. He will. Okay. Hello again, prince. So, of course, the wicked witch thinks, well, <laughs> he's going to be a frog a long time. But uh, things work out a little bit more favorably for the poor, poor prince. So is that what we're dealing with here? Okay. Is it saying, well, Jesus used to be God. Huh? Then he laid all that aside and became a human being. And then as a reward, I guess... He was let back to being God again. After all, it says he's given the name above every name. Would you please tell me what name is above every name? God, right? So is this here in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians like a German fairy tale? Okay. And the answer is no. It isn't like that at all. And if I had all night, I could prove it to you grammatically. Okay. If you look at the tenses of the verbs and the participles in this passage, it means quite unambiguously that while he remained in the form of God, he didn't cling to the equality but took on the form of a servant. So as to end up with two forms, two natures at once. Not flip-flopping from one to the other. And so this is not German fairy tale, and it's not Hinduism. I bet you didn't know that the frog prince was really a Hindu story, did you? <laughs> this isn't that. He remains in one nature, but takes on another. Having two answers to the question, what is he? By the way, it doesn't say here that our Lord ever laid down his human nature again. He didn't slough it off. He took it to heaven with him. All right. So our human nature is now enthroned forever in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father as the second nature, if you will, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now I have something else interesting to say about this passage, and it has nothing whatever to do with philosophy. What else I have to say about it is that St. Paul didn't write it. No. Now you're looking at me funny. You're thinking, is this guy one of those higher critics who's going to tell us St. Paul didn't write his letters? And, 
No, I'm not that kind at all. So why do I say St. Paul didn't write this? Answer, because this whole passage is in translation Greek, not natural Greek. Okay? And the sign of that, very simply, is the absence throughout this passage of the definite article. Greek, like English, has a definite article. Our definite article is the. Okay? And as I read this translation to you, you heard the plenty of times, didn't you? Yeah. He was in the form of God, didn't keep it, made himself of no, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, the death of the cross, etc. So the translation loses this feature of the Greek. And the definite article is every bit as common in Greek as the word the is in English. So to give you the flavor of this passage, I am going to read to you with my best attempt at Russian accent. <laughs> Works good because in Russian is no definite article. Okay? So, now listen how it really reads. Who, being in form of God, thought not to cling to be equal with God, but made self of no account and took upon him form of servant, and was made in likeness of men. And being found in fashion of man, humbled himself and became obedient into de unto death, even death of cross. Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him name above every name. That at name of Jesus every knee should bow, etc., etc., etc. You see what I did? I just left out the definite articles. And you can hear how funny it sounds. Okay? Now, the ancient um, authors were um, very different from us uh, in their theory of translation. We think that when you translate a passage, you should make it sound as though it was written in the, in the language you're translating into, make it very idiomatic and so on and so on. The ancients didn't think that way. They liked the translation to show as many grammatical features as possible of the original. Okay? Well, the original, in this case, was a language without a definite article. A language that didn't have a definite article as a separate word. Now, what language might that have been? That, <laughs> thank you. This is originally an Aramaic hymn. Okay? St. Paul translates it into Greek, or somebody did. And St. Paul quotes it, I presume it was sung in his day, in his congregations. But it had originally been in Aramaic. Now, um, uh, I want to ask you a, a question. Uh, when was the church pretty much all Aramaic speaking? Very early, right? Uh, 
By the 40s already, the early 40s, Christianity is beginning to spread to Greek-speaking places. And by the time St. Paul starts his missionary journeys, um, Greek is, is the spoken language in lots of places where St. Paul evangelizes, all over the place. Oh, and by the way, St. Paul could write flawless Greek. Okay. This is not a grammatical lapse on St. Paul's part. Very idiomatic when he wants to be. So this is a special indication that the text we've got before us was written before St. Paul's ministry. Was written when the church was still largely in Palestine and Aramaic speaking. I would date it the latest 45. Try 40. Try 38. Why not? Anyway, it's old. Very old. Okay. Now, what does it matter to us that this uh, passage goes all the way back to the thinking of the first Christian generation in Aramaic? Means this is not Greek speculation. This is expressing distinctions that could be understood by Aramaic speakers. And it gives us two descriptions as to what Jesus is. Yep. Now, one of those descriptions is very easy to unpack. One of them is man. What is he? He's man. He's found in the form of a man. See him walking down the streets in Palestine? What's that? That's a man over there. Of course. That's easy. But what are we about to say? What are we going to say about this other thing, which is what Jesus is? That's the problem. It became obvious already before the resurrection that it was just not adequate to say, this is a man. That could be a start, but it couldn't be enough. Why not? Human beings cannot forgive sins. The Pharisees were right about that. But Jesus did. Human beings don't work miracles. Jesus did. Human beings don't raise others from the dead. Jesus did. Okay? So clearly, this is not just a man. And uh, before he was even a man, which is the obvious part, here's the funny thing. He already existed. He was in the form of God, kept that form, came into time, took on a new form. Yes? As well as keeping the old one. You see? Uh, now, I don't know how it is with you, but ordinary human beings begin to exist when they have their human nature. You know what I mean? Before I was a human being, all right, all right, before I was a human embryo, I just didn't exist, right? Can you say anything else about yourself? Well, this person, 
existed before he was a human being. So, he seems to have a nature that can only be called divine. And now we have a tremendous, horrible, nasty conflict with the most distinctive belief of the Jewish people. Okay. If the Jews were known for professing one doctrinal point, it was the point that God is one. Go ahead, count the gods. Where does the count begin? One. Where does it end? One. There's just one God. Okay. Now what are we going to do here if we seem to have a God who takes on human nature? All right, all right, all right. But then, don't forget, after he died, God has highly exalted him. The God who exalted him is obviously not the God who took on human nature. So we seem to have two, the Father and the Son, shall we say, in divine nature. So there seem to be two gods. Well, that won't do. Not in Judaism, it won't do. There can only be one God. Jesus makes it impossible to describe him as just a man because of antics like forgiving people's sins. All right? And so the first generation of the apostles faced an immediate problem. This is in Jerusalem. This is in the late 30s. This is in the 40s. They have an immediate problem. They cannot get up and preach the gospel of Jesus until they can reconcile his having the divine form prior to the human form and there still being only one God. Does everybody see that that's a problem? They cannot wait until the 90s of the first century to solve that. They have to solve it in the first decade of the kerygma. The first decade of Christian preaching has to have an answer to that question. How do we say who this Jesus is without setting up a second God? Nice problem, don't you think? Okay. Fortunately, the New Testament tells us how that first generation solved it. Now, you may be wondering what all of this is going to have to do with the Council of Nicaea, which I was supposed to talk about tonight. We're not going to get there. What I'm going to do is set up the problem that Orthodoxy posed and then how Arius attacked us. So, be patient. I'm going to get to Nicaea and all the rest of it. But first, I'm setting up the problem. And I'm saying, in the very text of the New Testament, we find out how the apostles solved this fundamental problem. And the, um, the answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 24. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 24. Is anybody else turning to this, or am I doing all the work myself? Okay, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, unto the Greeks, foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, what? Power of God and the wisdom of God. Ah. Now, when I was a stripling youth, I thought that all St. Paul was saying there was that gee whiz, when God sent Jesus, he did a mighty smart thing. That's not the meaning. Okay. The real meaning is found if you go back into the Old Testament, which is where the apostles themselves would have to go. Remember, this is the year 35, 40. The rest of the New Testament isn't written yet. They have to go back into the Old Testament and find a place where they're presented with something that can be so close to God or so related to God that it can be of God and yet not make a second God. Well, where did they go? Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. All right? It is wisdom speaking. Okay? Wisdom leads in the way of righteousness, does various nice things. And then wisdom speaks about itself, herself. And she says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was already there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, I was by him, alongside him, next to him. I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men and therefore hearken unto me, O ye children. Blessed are they that keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not, and so on. End of speech. This, is, this has been wisdom speaking. What has wisdom just said about herself? By the way, the only reason we refer to wisdom as herself is because the noun in Greek and in Hebrew is a feminine noun. Okay. Don't get any wild feminist fantasies here. <laughs> it's, just, it's just grammar. Okay. What, 
What does wisdom say about itself? It says that she pre, it pre-exists creation, okay? And therefore is not a creature, is before all creatures, and wisdom says that it was with him and through him that God created all things. Okay? God made things in wisdom, with wisdom, through wisdom. So through wisdom he designed the earth, set the bounds of the sea, and did all of these other wonderful arrangements for cosmic order with wisdom. And now... I want you to ask yourself a very simple question. Deacon Sabatino, don't you want to hold up another sign? I don't want to yak all night. These people have other things to do. Aha! I want you to ask yourself a very simple question. This wisdom of God, is it wholly other than God? No. It's that through which God works, or in which God works. Yeah. But now, my question. Could this wisdom be a creature? Could God have created this as the first, like the first of his creations? First he creates his wisdom, then he creates the stars and the hills and the plains and the rocks and the rills and so on. Could that be how it was? He pre-exists creation, yeah. But could he have been created ahead of time or something? I don't know. And the point is, could this wisdom be a creature? And the answer is clearly no. Why not? Why not? Yeah, okay, okay. So everything else is created along with this wisdom, but why can't the wisdom itself have been created sort of beforehand? It's easier than you're making it, people. You're making wonderful suggestions, making it very hard. Listen, here it is. This is so simple. If God created his wisdom, what was he before he had it? A dummy? A fool? Did God just sort of blunder into creating his own smarts? This is ridiculous, am I right? Absolutely ridiculous. So, wisdom cannot be a creature. It has got to be something like an aspect of God himself co-uncreated with God prior to all creation, so like co-eternal with God, right? And yet not so independent of God as to add up to a second God. Does everybody see? This is what the apostles found to answer this question. How can we do credit Justice to what Jesus is and not introduce a second God. Okay? 
Christ is the wisdom, the eternal wisdom of God. So he is divine, yes, but he's not exactly the Father. The Father sent him and raised him up. Right? So, eventually, we will have more ways to understand how Jesus and his Father can be relatively two, but absolutely one. Okay? Relatively two, but absolutely one. We will see that when we go through the text of the Council of Nicaea. Because one of the best explanations is right there in the text. Okay. I need to tell you one more thing before I wind up absolutely. And that is that this description of Christ as the wisdom of God not only solved the immediate preaching problem for the apostles, but also laid the groundwork for St. John's famous language in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, para, same preposition as in Proverbs. The word was with God, and the word was God. Okay? In the beginning with God, etc., etc., Now, why does St. John call him the Logos? Why not call him wisdom? Well, is there a conflict here? There would be if the Greek word Logos meant a word in the ordinary sense of uh, the word. Okay, Ordinary sense, the word word means something you find in a dictionary. A lexical item in somebody's language. Okay, starts with a vowel, starts with a consonant, ends somewhere, a word. But that's not what logos meant. Uh, Greek had another word for that kind of word, the word that's printed in a dictionary. They called an R-H-E-M-A, chrema. That's an R, not an, I don't know what it looks like. Rhema. I I nearly died laughing one time. I was driving around the suburbs of Washington, and I drove past a Baptist church, and there it was, sign up in front, Rema Baptist Church, R-H-E-M-A. <laughs> wow. No, 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 call it Logos Baptist Church, if you're going to call it anything like that. Because Logos did not just mean a word. It meant an insight, an explanation, an account, a reasoning. Okay? Aristotle used the word logos to mean precisely that, an explanation, an account of something. And if you can give an account of something, you're wise about it. What is wisdom but having the correct account of things? God's logos is the account through which he understands himself and ultimately all of his works. Okay? So, John's language 
is again building on the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.24, building on the language of Proverbs 8. Okay, now then. I have told you all I need to tell you for the night, except one thing. The position I have just been giving, giving you was orthodoxy. From the 40s through the 50s, the 60s, all the way through the second century, all the way down to the beginning of the fourth century, this was orthodoxy. Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, Christ, that through which God works. Yep. And then came Arius, priest of the Archdiocese of Alexandria, and fell into the mistake I was just laughing at. Arius figured to avoid two gods, simple. Make the Logos a creature. Make God's wisdom a creature. Dumb move. How in the world did Arius justify it? Tune in next week and you shall hear all the thrilling details. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Marshner, for um, a very entertaining presentation and uh, an insightful presentation. God bless you. We take a short three-minute break of Q&A. So, Dr. Marshner, you read from St. Paul and you read from uh, Proverbs about the nature of Jesus being the nature of God. But does Jesus himself say that and where? Aha. He did not. Not in the synoptics. In John's Gospel, he does. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't say that. It's interesting. When he's asked, uh, when he gives himself a title, he gives himself the title Son of Man, not Son of God. But there are other entities around that have eyes to see, so to speak. Whenever he encounters a demon possessing somebody, the demon says, right, I know who you are, Son of God. Go away, don't bother me. I got nothing against you, et cetera, et cetera. So the first confession of his divinity is actually from the mouth of the devils whom he conquers. But in John's gospel, we do have statements such as, I and the Father are one, okay? meaning of one nature. Dr. Marshner, as a linguist, I would just hope for some help on this. Um, in Psalm 8, uh, it seems to be written, Proverbs 8, rather, uh, says, The Lord uh, set me up at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Uh, could you comment on that translation a little? Because uh, instead of created, it says set me up. Yep. Uh, your question is wonderful, but it's premature. <laughs> I just found out that a lot of people here brought along that thing called the Revised Standard Version. And the Revised Standard Version says at the beginning, he created me. Yeah. It is a bad translation. Very, very bad. Now, unfortunately, the same bad translation occurs in the Septuagint. 
And that's where Arius got part of his big idea. But I will go into that next time, and I will be talking about the real meaning of the Hebrew verb, which is there in Proverbs. It is not the technical verb that means to create. That verb is bara. That's not the verb. It's a different verb. He established me, he set me up, whatever you want to say, but it does not mean he created me. So, the RSV is once again showing its fangs. <laughs> okay, so I have a question about the Hinduism that you were going to. Do they believe there's sort of some separate self that just picks up different natures and natures yeah. completely, so none of this nature carries on, it's just one self somehow picking up different natures. Yeah, that's the right. The, Hebrew, the, the Sanskrit word is Atman, and that doesn't mean the soul, it means the self. So they have this totally disembodied, natureless self, which can then pick up different natures and discard them. Uh, it's a very strange conception and without metaphysical merit. Uh, Dr. Mercer, did the uh, Jewish people either at Jesus' time or currently address the uh, nature of wisdom and how do they reconcile that with God? Ho, 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 ho. They don't talk about this anymore. No, 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 but they did. I'm so glad you asked me that because I forgot to give you another Old Testament verse. Uh-huh. This is from the book called The Wisdom of Solomon. Chapter 7, verse 22. Get this. For wisdom, which is the worker of all things, taught me, for in it, in her, is an understanding spirit, holy, one only, manifold, subtle, lively, clear, undefiled, plain, not subject to hurt, loving the thing that is good, quick, which cannot be letted, that is to say, uh, impeded, um, ready to do good, kind to man, steadfast, sure, free from care, having all power, overseeing all things, going through all understanding, pure and most subtle spirits. For wisdom is more moving than any motion. She passeth and goeth through all things by reason of pureness. And now I'm in verse 25 of this book. She is the breath of the power of God and the pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty. So no defiling thing can fall into it, wisdom. For it is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God, and the image of his goodness. Now, that is ancient Jewish speculation about wisdom and its nature. If you want to see more evidence that the New Testament writers were using these points, I invite you to turn to the epistle to the Hebrews. Why don't you open up to chapter 1 and look at what it says in verse 3. God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, dot, 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 by whom also he made the worlds, 
And then he says, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the power of his, by the word of his power, etc., etc. When he had purged himself, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and so on. So this is the Son who becomes incarnate. We're told that all things were made through him. And then we're told that he's what? The brightness of God's glory. Brightness of the eternal light. And the express image of God's substance or person. Okay? Language taken from the wisdom of Solomon to describe wisdom turns up here in Hebrews. I mean, if I had the Greek, uh, if I could write up the Greek for you, uh, you'd see the verbal parallel more exactly. Same language. And remember I said um, you would learn something by thinking about how things could be relatively two but absolutely or substantially one, all right, brightness of the eternal light. Wisdom is the brightness of the eternal light. Okay, the brightness is of the light. Relatively speaking, they are two. The brightness is from the light, it's of the light. But the brightness is light, isn't it? Substantially one, relatively two. More next week. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. We did have, yeah, we did have an illegal question coming online from t- three young boys, Tommy, Joey, and Kevin, who tried to put in a question form. We love the beauty of your beard. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy and Joey, and God bless you all. We'll see you this Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.